I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm going to start the ball rolling here by... Um, I wanted to ask Anne's really how she got the idea for doing this splendid book. I suppose the idea came to me about eight years ago. I just moved to Sussex and I'd heard of these houses, uh, Monk's House in Charleston, where Vanessa Bell and Virginia Woolf lived. And I went to see them. But I, I fell in love with Charleston almost immediately. The creative energy was something I'd never really experienced before, certainly not in a house. And uh, I was inspired really to go and learn a little bit more about the Bloomsbury group. Vanessa Bell, Duncan Grant, Clive, uh, Roger Fry. And then I went back to the house, and this, the second tour I had uh, included the attic rooms, uh, which later became Vanessa Bell's studio. My also, bedroom. Your bedroom. <laughs> And uh, also the kitchen. And it was really in the kitchen I sort of felt for the first time that these people weren't just sort of 20th century icons. They were real people, and they ate. And I started, you know, thinking about Bloomsbury and cooking, and, and I guess that was sort of the genesis of the idea. It's a very interesting idea because, of course, it, in a way, doing something about food and these very famous people just doing something very everyday like eating brings them all very much more close to us and much more homely to us, doesn't it? Well, it is something that, you know, we all do. Exactly. And, uh, and certainly it's something the Bloomsbury group did a lot. Uh, you know, they were all individuals and they were all incredible in their, their respective fields. But they, they went off and they did this and then they would bring their sort of bounty and their ideas back to the table again and again. And uh, I guess they would discuss things, um, you know, erudite ideas, but also they would gossip. Then they go away and they do their brilliant things and come back over and over and, and over eat. again. Yeah. And eat, of course. <laughs> the the uh, amazing thing, I don't know how, how many people are aware of this, but Jan's has absolutely amazingly generously given the proceeds from this book to Charleston, to, to the Charleston Trust, which is an absolute boon and in, amazingly generous, and I'm sure everyone at Charleston Trust should be <laughs> thrilled... Thank you. Well, my pleasure, really. Um, it, it really is uh, the most incredible place, and I think if anyone hasn't been there, they should certainly go, and then you'll understand why, as long as we can keep this place going. It's definitely worth it. And the kitchen and dining room are particularly nice parts of the house as well. Um, not your bedroom? No, well, <laughs> well, the bedroom, I mean, when I say my bedroom, it was shared with whoever else, other small children who lived there, and we had a... a a mattress that was literally made of straw and very lumpy, and we slept on in sleeping bags. So it wasn't exactly Grand Luxe, but Charleston never was luxurious. Now, the recipes, that's really interesting to me because, uh, obviously, especially in the early part of the book, one's very aware that people of that ilk did not know how to cook. So where did you get the recipes from? 
the early recipes uh, certainly came from recipe books of the period. They're sort of, uh, you know, rice puddings and creme brulee and these sort of things. Of course, I mean, they, they, were, they grew up as Victorian children with sort of a raft of servants to look after them in their households. So, for instance, um, the Stephen family, later Virginia Woolf, uh, they lived at 22 Hyde Park Gate in, in London, and they had seven servants to serve sort of the 11 members of the, the household. Practically um, one each. Yeah, <laughs> practically one each. And then as time moved on, um, they, they started cooking um, themselves. And this really began probably around the beginning of or the middle of, sort of the First World War. A lot of the servants had gone to sort of help with the war effort to work in factories. With only one or two servants around, Bloomsbury had to sort of... Um, pitch in and, and do a bit of the cooking themselves. There's this wonderful story um, of Virginia who uh, was at Asheham House, their, their country house, and uh, the cook was ill, and uh, Barbara Hiles was there. She was an artist friend. So she came over, and, and Virginia said, you know, I don't know what we're, we're going to eat, because the cook is off ill. And uh, Barbara you know, said, oh, well, I can make some scrambled eggs. And Virginia said, can you really cook scrambled eggs? I know, I was going to bring that story up. I love that story. It's, like, it's quite amazing I mean, how the other half lived, I suppose. But yeah, yes. So the recipes are, I noticed quite a few from Mrs. Beaton. But you also invent recipes, Jans. It's very impressive. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Basically, I, I, I gathered about 180 original Bloomsbury recipes, and where I could use them in the narratives that I had written, I used them. And then where they didn't fit, I used recipes from books of the period. And then where that didn't work, I used my own <laughs> recipes. So, um, for example, there's this one long-winded recipe uh, called Tunisian citrus fruits with pork chops and crushed sage. Look delicious. That was my own. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, th- this narrative begins with an excerpt of a letter from um, uh, Vanessa Bell to Duncan Grant thanking him for these citrus fruits that he had sent to her from Tunisia, so oranges and lemons. And she said, you know, thank you, they're beautiful, thank you for sending them on long stalks. I just had to put them in my yellow Italian vase and paint them. And then I found the painting. So I had so these two parts, and then I was wondering, okay... Um, the narrative is about the relationship between um, Duncan and Vanessa, and um, they, they loved each other. They, they got together enough to produce uh, Angelica, a, ch- a beautiful daughter, um, but essentially Duncan was homosexual. <laughs> <together enough. laughs> well, it was a short, well, long enough, a few years, a few years perhaps. Uh, so basically this whole love that Vanessa had for Duncan was sort of slightly unrequited, and Angelica... Her, their daughter later said that her mother had this pungency about her, like the smell of crushed sage. So I have the letter, I have the painting, and I have the crushed sage. So, so pork chops, so hey, so, <laughs> seemed to fit. There you go. Well, it's great to know how you will come up with it. <laughs> but, um, but, so, but did you actually, did you cook everything in the book? Uh, I'd like to say yes, um, <laughs> but actually it's not true. There are a few recipes. The suet pudding. Suet puddings I did. That was the most disgusting recipe in the whole thing. I think it must be in the war years. But I, mean, I, I think I, you're supposed to put things... the slide just went past, but it's, it's literally flour, what is it, flour, salt, and suet, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, you I, just, I tasted it. <laughs> didn't, you didn't have to swallow everything. The dog, <laughs> you got a compliant dog. 
Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I tried those. It was actually the aspic recipes I was really quite happy to get to the end of. Oh, uh, really? Um, aspic doesn't taste bad, but I think the, uh, the textures have sort of moved on in sort of modern cuisine. There's also a recipe um, that required a bushel of flour. A bushel? A bushel, wow. yeah. A bushel makes 100 loaves of bread. So I didn't um, do that one. There's other, another bizarre recipe um, that Lydia Lobakova contributes. She was the, um, the Russian ballerina wife of Maynard Keynes. And uh, she wasn't the greatest of cooks. But she nevertheless was um, asked to contribute a series of articles to the Evening News in 1927. And this was one of the recipes. It's called Black Game. And what you do is you take this large grouse and you, you put it in a paper bag and you bury it for two weeks. Oh. It tenderizes the meat. And then you dig it up, you pluck it, you draw it, and you stuff it with apples and chestnuts, and then braise it before serving it with dumplings and small carrots. I didn't you try know, that one. Either. I was somewhat surprised you know. by all the Lydia Lopakova recipes. I mean, there were quite a few in there. Some of them looked okay, like there was a, a sorrel soup. Uh, yeah, which looked okay. Hard to go wrong in a soup, really. So well, that, one, mean, that one worked. That I is just, fine. I, I, I didn't meet Lydia. Well, I did meet her to say hello to. But I used to see her as a child, and she'd be, she would walk up the, the drive at Charleston dressed in full ballet russe costume. No. Yeah, absolutely. Pink, orange, the whole thing with, you know, breastplates. And, and just as children, you just go... Wow, who's that? They say, oh, that's Lydia going for a walk. And she was absolutely magnificent. You know, she'd go, hello, Mr. Quentin, to my father. And, but, the, you know, there's a wonderful story about her also, which is she'd like to go walking on the downs. And sometimes she says she collected sorrel on the downs. I think you, you, you yes, quote that in the book. Grass, yes. And uh, she, she, uh, she'd gone for a walk and was sitting, taking the sun, topless, <laughs> And I think the, the then Lord Gage was passing by. So she was totally horrified. So she... I won't do it, don't worry. She just went like this. <laughs> Woo! And she, of course she was bottomless underneath. <laughs> so she covered her face so she couldn't see him. But I just, you know, then... There's all these wonderful stories about Lydia, but I never imagined her. These wonderful little cookery articles is sort of completely yeah, I out think of what I imagined to be her character. Yeah, you, you, I mean, try, try the recipes. I mean, they won't all work out. Um, they're, really, they're really, really for, for reading, and it's quite obvious, actually. Um, there's this one recipe that I, I did try. It was called ulia. It's a Russian soup. Mm. And you, you get a whole bunch of fish heads, and you have to... Um, fish heads, sorry. And you, you boil them for about two or three hours till they resemble rags, uh, which I, I duly did. And then, but I didn't go so far as to sort of pulverize the three ounces of caviar that was required to clarify the soup. <laughs> I knew at that point it would be a total waste. <laughs> no, well, I, I think it was a, an extraordinary effort uh, on your part to do all those. So uh, who do you think were the best cooks, having done all the uh, research that you did? That's a good question. Again, we're looking at a large, over a large period of time. So Carrington, I think, at, at the time was probably a fantastic cook. She cooked oh, really? um, wonderful dishes for Lytton and their friends. Um, you know, epic making. This is in her letters. She sold them very well as well in her letters when she was describing them to friends. Epic making suppers. Uh, chicken covered with fennel and tomato. Risotto made with almonds and onions and pimentos. Sack cream. Feasts. She Did you get any recipes from her or not? 
No, her recipes are lost, sadly. Oh, it's a shame. Really, I really searched high and low. Um, but there are sort of, uh, she used to illustrate her, her letters with um, pictures, as it won the book of a, a hen. I was going to say, I love that picture. Eating a, a pie that she had made that had gone off. Anyway, so she was a marvelous cook. Um, Bonnie Garnett was probably the most adventurous cook, and I think he was a very good cook as well. Virginia, your sister, remembered him making lamb's testicles. Well, I, I remember him cooking very a lot because I, I used to go to stay with him in his house in Montcuc in France, where Virginia actually stayed with him and worked for a while as well. She helped him, I don't know, with his research or something. Yes. But yes, he was a he was a a very very you know accomplished cook, and he was very serious about his cooking. And he kept a guest book which said everything he'd given the people last time they'd come to stay. So he'd say, okay, very last time nice. came, you came to stay, we had, you know, yeah. rognon de veau avec blah blah you know, whatever. And, and apparently he had a wonderful vegetable garden? Yeah, well, well, that was in England. I mean, he didn't have a vegetable garden so much in Montcuc, but he had, did have a spectacular garden. They lived in um, Hilton House in Hilton in Huntingdonshire. And uh, he had a, a vegetable garden twice the size of the whole footprint of this building, I would say with serried ranks of absolutely perfect specimens of everything. And Fantastic. I just, it was, and I, as a child, just wanted to go and eat straight out of the garden always. It was just wonderful. And he also kept bees, which, are, which is a, you, you mentioned there's a section in the book, Bunny and Bunny's Honey. Bunny's Honey. honey. <laughs> um, poor Bunny being called Bunny, but you know, it stuck with him, I'm afraid. But uh, his, yes. uh, and he, yeah, he was an apiarist all his life. And it also, I didn't know about his passion for fungi until I read this. Yes, no, he had, a, I, I can't pronounce the name of it, but he had. A, he found this um, this new mushroom, and it was named after him. That's right. Yeah. I thought he found it. I thought he was also a, he was a botanist, but I think he's a zoologist. I think he had a beetle named after him. Or well, maybe I've just You're confused kidding. that with the, with the mushroom. Maybe that's a childhood memory that's gone a bit awry. You never know. But, uh, but Frances Partridge appears to have been a pretty good cook. I mean, I knew her as an old lady, but yes. I don't really think I ate any food she made. She, I don't know if everyone's familiar with her, she was uh, Rafe Partridge's second wife, um, his first wife being Dora Carrington. And uh, she famously said that she couldn't boil a potato or an egg before the Second World War, which is probably fairly true, probably true. Um, she had to keep up with Carrington, obviously, second wife, <laughs> yes. But by then, Carrington was out of the picture. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, no, she, she learned to become a very, very good cook, actually. And I, I found her recipe book at King's College in the archive there. And I was absolutely you know, overjoyed to find it. And a lot of her recipes appear in this book, actually. Yes, I was, I mean, I was looking at you. She's One got of the chicken pancakes, Creole beef, habitat, toast with habitat. truffle cream and artichoke and fresh rosemary. We're having. I mean, they're really definitely I things that you feel like eating. I would say Francis's Francis recipes are the ones you think, yeah, I'll do that. They're very good. Um, Helen Anrap's recipes um, are pretty good as well. But she's the suet pudding woman. (laughs) (laughs) They work. Well, jam roly-poly is excellent. It's another boiled pudding. (laughs) And obviously Grace Higgins, the cook at Charleston, was a a tremendous cook. You you remember her recipes as well, do you? Yes, I mean, when she, she was at Charleston all my early life, and I... I remember doing, going to her retirement party, and, I, and um, I can't think how old I was, but probably about 12 or something like that, 12, 13. So, yeah, all the meals were made there. And, in fact, as a, as a child at Charleston, we weren't allowed to go into the, the studio where all the grown-ups were. So we used to hang out with Grace. 
Yes. And Grace held court in the kitchen, and everyone, the postman ended his round there, because he'd finish his round, the milkman, everyone would finish their rounds and come and sit in the Charleston <coughs> kitchen, where she would make tea and rock cakes, and just was just an in- incredibly sort of warm and uh, friendly person, you know, she had a war- the, the place had a warm glow, and if you were you were hungry, you could normally find Grace to give you something. The wonderful thing, um, I found her recipes at the British Library, and she kept a very good record of her recipes. Um, Not all of them were dated. So whenever I sort of write a narrative about Charleston or or Vanessa or Duncan, a lot of times I use Grace's recipes. Yeah. I was saying about this, her famous Melba toast, which I think you really have to do in an arga, because she does these very thin slices of bread that were almost so dark brown they were caramelised they were delicious I've never had that anywhere else I mean there's Melba Toast and Melba Toast but hers was different and she also had her famous Grace Cake which actually apparently lots of other people did but we called it a Grace Cake it was one where you, you weigh your, all your ingredients against your eggs so it's perfectly balanced but she learned to cook in France didn't she? Yes, Elise uh, Aleganti who was their cook in Cassis taught her um, Buffam Dope there's a Francis Partridge recipe there you go and the beignets as well that um, yeah. Angelica makes. Yeah, she, she, she became a very good cook, actually, a good student. And learned a bit of French as well. I think she was only a young thing. Her great story was she used to, before she worked at Charleston, she worked in a chocolate factory. I didn't and know she that. Um, used to tell us how, that when she started at whatever she was, 13, they said, you can eat as much chocolate as you want. And she said, you know, you just eat and eat and eat chocolate for about three weeks, and then you never want to touch the stuff again. And she would never eat chocolate. Now, Cressida, I know you don't eat any chocolate or sweet things. Did you ever work in a chocolate factory? Uh, Almost undoubtedly in a previous life. (laughs) (laughs) I will have the odd chocolate, but if you give me a box, it'll last me six months. Very strange. I know, apparently it's not quite human not to like chocolate. (laughs) So who are the worst cooks? I mean, there must have been some really bad ones as well. The worst cooks... Uh, there's something I haven't well, the been worst asked before. Well, uh, oh, the worst recipes. Okay. Well, we've done the that, worst I cooks. The I'm worst thinking. Cooks. Okay. Well, Clive Bell. I've never known him to pick up a wooden spoon. I don't um, think Clive for cooking anyway. Um, uh, um, I don't think Clive could cook. No. I mean, no. my father could barely cook. Well, he made a very good cocktail, didn't he? Yes. Uh, That's a not gin. Cooking. That's not cooking, is it? That's and drink. a uh, chapon, which is sort of a, a garlic-infused crouton. Yeah. He made, he made the salad dressing, and he made the drinks. <laughs> that's pretty that good was, that was about it I would say but he did try at one point when my mother uh, broke her ankle he spent quite a lot of time trying to learn how to cook it was quite impressive I mean he was at that point in his I would say early 70s mid 70s and it was the first mm-hmm. time I'd seen him try to really cook anything and uh, cake decoration was that something you did with him indeed actually that was his thing but uh, as, as I say cake decoration of the sort that I do is not cooking, and it's not. There is no skill. It's just a matter of getting lots and lots of gaudy things and arranging them in a pretty pattern. I think it's, it requires a lot of skill. <laughs> it's absolutely well, stunning. No, no piping skills, but I always thought I thought everyone did cakes like that. And then when the Rolling Stones brought out "Let It Bleed," there was this cake on the cover, which I thought was just normal. And apparently, Delia Smith did it. It's one of her first oh, really? jobs. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> oh, I didn't know but that. she was trying to do something as vulgar as was humanly possible. And I just thought. Oh, look, it looks like one of our Christmas cakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, you can see that we're not quite on the same hymn sheet, Delia and I. Now, the book is absolutely crammed with illustrations and anecdotes. I haven't read it all the way through. I, I've, I've so far done what I think is the 
a, a really fun way to read it is just to keep picking it up and reading another little bit. Um, but which are your favourite anecdotes? There's some very good ones in there. Probably my favourite is the first one which appears in the book and um, the first one which I, I put together as well. It's a narrative called um, Talent House Creme Brulee. And Talent House was the Stephen family a holiday home, a summer holiday home in Cornwall. And uh, Virginia tells the story how she and her brothers and sister used to get this large basket and tie it to the end of a very long piece of string and go fishing with it out of the night nursery because directly below the night nursery was the kitchen. And Sophie, who was the cook at the time, if, if uh, she was in one of her good moods, she'd take the basket and she filled it up with lots of goodies from the adult's dinner table. But if she was in a bad mood, she'd grab the basket, cut the string. <laughs> that was the end of that. And Virginia recalled the sensation of the, the heavy basket and the light string, oh. which I think is lovely. I love the way you um, um, give anecdotes about Virginia Woolf that are, are very much contrary to many people's feelings about Virginia, which is that you get this sort of, as portrayed by Nicole Kidman, slightly gloomy, slightly down mm. in the mouth, and that your, all your anecdotes portray her as I was always led to believe by my father that she was incredibly funny and good fun and a laugh yeah, and um, I think it's really, it's really joyous in your book to read that Virginia was somebody who, who could really have a nice a fun time. Well I think she was she was you know up I think so she had this sort of undiagnosed bipolarity I think that's yeah. pretty well understood these days but she was up and positive and happy most of the time. In fact um, Clive said that um, whenever Virginia was coming to tea they knew it was going to be exciting. They knew they would laugh and be surprised and made to feel that the temperature of life was several degrees higher. What a great thing to have said about you, huh? Yeah. You know, there's this party she describes in, in her diary as well. She, there was this 12th night party that Maynard had organized, and she describes, you know, approaching the stairs of Gordon Square, and there's Mary Hutchinson in her yellow trousers and her green ribbons, and uh, Leonard was there in his single sword, and she said... Their blood wasn't the whitish, sticky fluid of daytime. It was brilliant and sparkling like champagne. Yes, I remember. Shakespeare, she said, would have liked them all tonight. I love that, yes. Yeah, but she was like that. She just, she had this wonderful way of looking at the world. Um, it was sort of in technicolor, you know, everything was enhanced. So lots of good VW anecdotes. So she got called that in my house a bit. VW. VW. Well, because my sister's called Virginia, and it was always a bit... It was either Mrs. Wolf or VW, otherwise my poor sister, even when you just said Virginia now, I felt like saying, which Virginia? <laughs> but uh, it, was, it was tough on my sister to be the same name. So you can imagine when my father was writing her biography, it took about ten years of having two Virginias in the house, so to speak. So. I bet, I bet. I, I mean, there was... Not so much an anecdote, there's a wonderful um, E.M. Forster piece where he's got this Indian thali that he eats. In, um, where, where, where is he? I'm, I he he's in, in India. He's in Salon, is he? He's working no, uh, as private secretary to uh, Maharaja Dua. Duas? Devas? He has, yes, because he describes. Can I read this bit? Sure. He arrived yeah. on a large painted elephant and bedecked in fine Indians and silks and muslins. He feasted upon the following as he reported in a letter to his mother later published in the hill of Devi, or Devi, I don't know. So he has one, a mound of delicious rice, a great standby. Two, brown tennis balls of sugar, not bad. Three, golden curlicues, sweet to sickliness. Four, little spicy rissoles. Five, second mound of rice, mixed with spices and lentils. Six, 
third mound of rice, full of sugar and sultanas. Very nice. Seven, curry in metal saucer, to be mixed with rice number one. Eight, sauce, as if made from apples that felt poorly, also to be mixed with rice, but only once by me. <laughs> Nine, another sauce, chewy, booey, and brown. Ten, eleven, twelve, three dreadful little dishes that tasted of nothing till they were well in your mouth when your whole tongue suddenly burst into flame. I got to hate this side of the tray. <laughs> Thirteen, long, thin cake, like a brandy snap, but salt. Fourteen, it may have been vermicelli. Fifteen, as for canaries. Sixteen, fourth mind of right to, to which I never came. Seventeen, water. Eighteen, native bread. It was, it's just that it's, I love this list of... And you just think, I think it's what we call a thali now, but it's just, I just think it's very, it's very funny. Yeah, that was a letter he sent to his mother. I think it was sent to, on his birthday, he sent that out. And you mentioned Clive going on his walks. You've gone on Oh, Clive. <laughs> Clive was a wonderful character. Clive got a bit, um, oh, he felt the middle age spread. Portly, yes. Portly, yeah, yeah. And um, apparently he, once he was in Lady Lewis's, drawing room with the elite of London probably a room very similar to this actually and they're, all, they're sitting there listening to the Rosenthal play Chopin and they're sitting there and Clive is like this when all of a sudden his waistcoat button bursts off his jacket and flies across the room with such impetuosity Virginia Woolf noted that the slow movement was entirely ruined <laughs> and he brushed it off he says the fatter and fatter one gets the more enchanting life becomes but he also, yeah, he had this passion for chocolate. There's a, the story that I think Virginia told you yes. uh, that he would be walking along the top of the downs and get a bit peckish and would go down to the Furl Village stores, buy some chocolate, and walk straight back up and resume his walk from where he'd started. <laughs> so he didn't, he still did the rest of the walk. But it's, he also stole chocolates off, my, off um, his children. They were given to him during the war when he was in London. He said, Go take them back to your children. And he ate them all himself. And oh. after the war, oh. Confessed all and gave them the empty box. Oh. <laughs> I think he was a bit of a glutton. Oh well. Oh, well. Joie de vivre. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, quite so. Now I want to ask you about your early, early memories. Um, first memory of Charleston. Well, I think that is when I was four. I, I mean, I remember this very, very clearly, but it was my fourth birthday, which happened to fall on Easter Sunday. And we had an Easter egg hunt in the garden at Charleston. Mm-hmm. And I remember very vividly smoothing out the paper. Needless, I don't remember the chocolate. I remember the paper that was wrapped around it. And being in Quentin's Pottery, which was there in those days, and smoothing out. I remember this wonderful harlequin-patterned silvery paper. And then everyone disappeared. And I was absolutely... didn't know what to do. I, was, I didn't know where they'd all gone. So sort of needless to say, you end up going to the kitchen to find Grace... Yes. And she wasn't there. And I was really hungry. And I ended up going and sneaking out of my mother's bedroom some children's aspirins, <laughs> which oh I ate because I was hungry. Oh, dear. And, and where was everybody? They'd all, it turned out they'd all gone into Lewis to buy my birthday cake without telling me because it was meant to be a surprise. And they left you there on your own at four? Well, well, <laughs> some, I don't know that, where they were. I, I felt like I was on my own anyway. Oh, no. But I remember the birthday cake because it had four little fluffy yellow chicks on it. So I remember that really, Isn't that wonderful? really... Very, very vividly. And we used to go and, you know, collect the hen's eggs from the, the granary, which doesn't exist anymore. I remember yes. that very strongly. And, and going, because it was a working farm in those days, and we would go and see the calves that they had, Jersey herd there, and you 
could put your fingers in their mouths and they'd suck them because they oh. were they were still suckling. suckling. Do you call them suckling calves? And those sort of things. It yes. was very it was very um, rural and idyllic. Um, but the then the sitting at table. I do a very 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 vague remembrance of Clive, who died when I was four. So that may have been before my birthday. But I remember him. He would come in last to lunch. They would ring a bell, and everyone would go to the main dining room. And it was always a scrabble for who got the the plate that we all liked best. You know, it was always a nice plate that you wanted. The one I liked. I did a cake sort of vaguely based on it, actually, from my... But it was orange and blue with sort of flowers on. And it was done by Duncan, probably. But, uh, you know, I don't particularly remember the food. I just remember Clive had a neck brace. I just remember all the details and because you're very close to the table, you remember what it looked like on yes. the painted table and the painted pottery and mm-hmm. the sort of grown-ups around. And what about Leonard Wolfe? Because he wasn't far away, was he? No. The main reason to go and see Leonard was to get a pound. Because <laughs> he would always give us a pound note. And he was a bit scary, to be honest. I was intimidated by him. He was, you know, he was old and he was, had, he was very shaky, he had shakes. But he, again, he had a wonderful vegetable garden. And all I wanted was to be able to pick something. You can see I'm just a complete greedy pig. It's terrible. My, I can see how I'm coming across. But I just remember going, I snuck a plum off his tree. I never thought to ask him. I mm. snuck a plum. And then I put it up my sleeve. And then, of course, I couldn't wait to leave, so I could then eat it without <laughs> having to be seen. And I'm sure if I'd asked him, he'd have said, yes, by all means, take 20. But I just never thought of doing so. Yeah. But he was... He was very genial. I once went with my cousin Nerissa. We, we walked across the fields to go and visit him, had cake and tea with him. He, yes, he wasn't, he wasn't the bundle of laughs that I imagined that Virginia, Virginia was, but on the other hand, Duncan was a bundle of laughs. Duncan was absolutely was enchanting. Yes. If you can find anyone who says a bad word about Duncan, I'd be very surprised. I completely fell in love with him. I mean, he was certainly one of my favourites. I mean, he wouldn't say a bad word about anyone else, much to everyone's irritation when he when he had Edward Heath, who was at that point still Prime Minister, and somehow he, we all rather liked him in latter days, but at that point he came around to see Duncan, and we kept saying, oh, you can't like him, he's odious. He said, oh, it's very, very charming. Oh. <laughs> he, would be very, he would join in with things, he would join in with games, he would join in with charades, and mm-hmm. I remember him at, as a child, he, he came to our house at Christmas, and we, he had to be in a flock of sheep when he was, he was about 87, and he had, we stuck a a coat hanger on his head we bound it on with sellotape he had a brown blanket over and sort of crawling around on all fours doing <laughs> 87 which is pretty good at 87 I think yeah he was he was charming very good and what about Vanessa what do you remember none I was uh, I was one when she died oh right okay so, sorry so I just she knew me but I didn't know her <laughs> I think you might say Bunny very of good. course as I say I knew, knew pretty well I mm. think and Quentin describes him in your book as a bear. Or as a bear, a, he yes. Says he was, an a, yeah, a, an animal with a fondness for, for uh, berries and honey, but also a carnivore. Um, I might want to explain this, actually. Uh, Bunny had a, a love affair with Duncan Grant, which lasted for about three or four years. Uh, and then uh, he, was, he was present when Angelica, uh, Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell's daughter, was born. And he weighed Angelica on the kitchen scales. And he later wrote a, a note to Lytton Strachey saying that its beauty is the remarkable thing about it, I think, of marrying it. When she is 20, I shall be 46. Will it be scandalous? 
Well, it was, but he got the numbers wrong. He married her 23 years later, not 20. And so I think this caused initially probably a lot of animosity. That's probably why he's a bit of a bear. But also um, he had an incredible bad temper. I mean, oh, I didn't know really, that. Really, really, I mean, apoplexy was not the word for it. I mean, you would go red in the face. And you'd, I mean, I saw him in the temper a few times, and you did think he was going to burst. And that was apparently when he'd calmed down in his old age. Oh, so really? So he, ha- he had a furious temper. So I think that was probably what Quentin was also referring to as well. What was he angry about? Do you remember? Uh, on that particular moment that I can particularly remember was staying in France with him and uh, some friends of Virginia's, my sister's, came to stay and I can't remember, they, they did something like leaving the toilet seat, seat up or some, <laughs> some not very large misdemeanour. Right, but, and, and, but they didn't behave properly in some way and he just... I mean, he just exploded with fury. And there was nothing you could do about it. He was unbelievable. There's one incident in my book when uh, Julian Bell is caught by Bunny, and he'd been sort of trampling marrows. I read sort of, uh, I think he was probably about, um, probably 10 at the time. And yes, Bunny was quite angry. But but Julian was quite, Julian was just as angry, but just half the size. So Bunny won. (laughs) <laughs> he said, yeah, it's only my superior you know, size meant exactly. that I won. He, was, he sort of thought he met his match. Yes. But, uh, but that Bunny was also incredibly vain. He used to show me pictures of himself sort of climbing up the front of Charleston in the nude and things like that and saying, wasn't I got marvellous, you know. I saw that picture. He did have a very good body. <laughs> he had a good bottom. He liked to, he liked to show people. Yes, yes I, think, I think gardening obviously had quite a lot of impact on... I mean, having good gardens must have had quite a lot of impact, which again, is probably a, a factor of the, their class and then having servants to do all that, do you think? Yes, um, and also the war played a huge factor because it was oh, yes. uh, the onset of the war that they moved out of London and they moved to Asherham, um, Charleston, Garsington, and Wizard Lodge. And, you know, there were, weren't so many servants. And, and so for the first time, I think, um, and there was less food about as well, so I think for the first time they, they took a huge interest in um, you know what what it took to to bring food to the, their plates, and so they became really good uh, vegetable gardeners. And as uh, a result, I think maybe had some more unusual food than would have been current at the time, like artichokes and stuffed vine leaves and interesting foods. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. But also, I'm. It was absolutely fantastic. I mean, if you think about it. Their food was uh, fresh, it was organic, it was seasonally produced, it hadn't flown thousands of miles halfway across the globe. Do you think they were uh, more adventurous than your average Brit at the time, or not? I think well, everything about Bloomsbury is more adventurous. What I mean is in their food. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Also, they, they travelled a lot, and they wanted to reproduce the, f- the foods that they had fallen in love with. I mean, they were hugely influenced by post-impressionism, and so when they went to, to Europe... You know, they tasted garlic. Garlic in this country was this odious bulb that made people smell. You know, it was really taboo to use it, but Bloomsbury weren't afraid. Yeah. Uh, and they grew wonderful herbs in their gardens as well, and that was, you know, quite unique. So, sort of to round this bit off, I would say, why Bloomsbury and food? I mean, why not the surrealists and food? Why not the futurists and food? It's interesting. Will that be your next book? Uh, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I don't know if it'll be my next book. It depends where I, you know, uh, Dali did not live an hour away from me, so I didn't go see his house. <laughs> when you moved to Charleston, Charleston was just, a, you know, just along the A27. Well, 
You know, initially, I was when I went to Charleston, I thought of cooking. I would just write a cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, it was going to be soups and salads, meats, fish, and this sort of thing. Inspired by or just of, of their recipes? Uh, of their recipes. Okay. But as I got to know them, it, would, it wouldn't do them justice to just to write about what they ate. I mean, they were, they were such incredible people, and they were so fun. And uh, they became my friends, and I wanted to write more about them. Well, and I so it, it, it morphed. I mean, I kept the title. I worked from the title, but it became a bit, It became more of a cookbook. It became more sort of, I wouldn't say it's a biography. It's more sort of a, a, a book of biographical sketches. I think it's the, the, uh, the, the direction of cookbooks to come. I think they all have to be like that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, do, I love a cookbook with good, plenty of fine writing in it, and this one's got more than most. Great. So I think it's a, it's a fantastic work of extreme effort and sort of it's a generous book. That's what's great about it. I mean, I don't. I hope you've all seen it, and I'm sure you will in a minute. But it's you know, you just every page is a little gem in there. It's just fantastic. I'd just like to say I've had I had a huge amount of help from the current Bloomsbury members. Obviously, Cressida designed the chapter headings and the cover. Uh, her sister Virginia um, gave me a lot of editorial feedback way back at manuscript stage. And Henrietta Garnett loaned me um, the artworks, a lot of the artworks, and the permissions to use the artworks. And so, well, having all you on board, read it through, didn't you? and your mum read it through as well, actually, yes. Um, so everyone was really helpful and um, filled in a lot of the blanks where they were needed. Well, yeah, Olivia is the great, uh, the, the great source of fount of all knowledge about Bloomsbury. Still, I think my mother, that is. she certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, has anyone got any questions? Hello. Did you find the kitchen at Charleston rather cold with all the doors? I was very struck by all the doors that go into the kitchen. And I just wondered if you found it cold at any time. Actually not. It was probably the warmest room in the house because the Argo was always going. Um, (laughs) Oddly enough, it was was very warm. I mean, you're right about the doors, but they had curtains on the doors as well. But because the Argo was going, it was was cosy. most places in Charleston were pretty chilly, and I never wanted to have a bath there. Oh, <laughs> worst place. Could you remind me where they lived in Bloomsbury, please? Oh, where uh, 46 Gordon Square. 46 Gordon Square, and they had 51 Gordon Square, 50 Gordon Square, 36 Gordon Square. <laughs> Tavistock? No, that was, that was no, Omega, wasn't it? No, Fitzroy, Fitzroy Square as well. Um, Brunswick Square. Um, <laughs> and, um, this is where Jans knows way better than I do. Uh, and then I'm just trying to think of uh, my editors here tonight. Flora, where, where did Leonard and Virginia Woolf <laughs> move to right after they were married? Uh, um, a series of flats. Where? I think she's done a pretty good answer. That's pretty <laughs> comprehensive. <there. laughs> I'll tell you afterwards. They did a indeed. circle of friends who lived in squares and loved in triangles, as they say. Dorothy, Dorothy Parker, Parker, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Clifford's Inn. Clifford's Inn. That's where Leonard and Virginia lived. Clifford's Inn. Did they uh, did they go out shopping uh, for meat and fish, or were were uh, these things supplied to them? Uh, they they were primarily supplied to them. I mean, their servants, although Bloomsbury did sort of cook a little bit, they very rarely did the shopping, um, certainly before the Second World War. 
Uh, although there is sort of a, Virginia once wrote a letter to T.S. Eliot saying she's just going walk across the fields to fetch a chicken for dinner. So it wasn't unheard of to do their own shopping. And certainly um, Bunny Garnet used to love to go to the, the markets in France. He wrote lots of letters about what he saw there, which was anything, everything imaginable, dead or alive. <laughs> I, th- I think it all would depend on the sort of era, wouldn't it? Because obviously in le- latter, latter days... You know, latter days, shopping, yes. Yes, and certainly after um, 1939, everything changed. Thank you very much for your questions. Um, yeah, thank you all very much for coming. And most of all, thank you, Jans and Cressida. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>